Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. When Michelle Bender was just a month old, her mother realized she couldn't take care of her. So she went down to Tulsa County DHS and signed adoption papers, relinquishing her parental rights. Michelle was placed in foster care. The first foster placement complained that Michelle, who was still an infant, was a problem child and cried too much. But her second foster family became devoted to her, quickly and forever. I was the youngest sibling of four children, and I was the most spoiled because I was the baby. Michelle was two years old when Susan and Charles Robertson adopted her. My parents are non-native. Throughout this interview, I will refer to them as my parents because they are my parents. Uh, They're the ones that loved me, nurtured me, and raised me. Despite the love and support she got from her family, Michelle always felt like there was something missing. I always had a sense of belonging within the walls of my home. But when it came to outside of the walls of the home, the reality of my race really... uh, became an issue. As a Native kid, Michelle wasn't accepted by white students. As a child, I had made attempts to associate with children uh, that looked like my family members, but I was never allowed to go play with them outside of school. But growing up removed from her culture and tribe, she didn't fit in with Native kids either. When I attempted to make friends with children that I looked like, I was also rejected. Most of the time they call me an apple because I didn't know or understand what it was to be a Native person. That's an insult used to tell a Native person they aren't Native enough. It really put me into an identity crisis. Michelle didn't know it, but she was growing up not far from her tribe. Michelle's mom worked at a local grocery store. And during the summers, Michelle would tag along. Every day, the same elderly man would come by. She remembers him vividly. I'd recognized him, and my mom had always said he was okay for me to talk to. And so he would come in and sit down, and we'd just talk. They had a bond that neither of them understood at the time. Well, later on, he had told my mom that I looked familiar to him. He didn't know why, but I I looked familiar. Michelle knew she was Native, but she never knew which tribe until she was 16. That year, she asked her mom to take her to Oklahoma City to unseal her adoption records. And so my mom and I made an appointment in Oklahoma City to have my permanent records opened, and we found that I was a Seminole Indian. And so we um, then took the records to Seminole Nation, and I was an enrolled member. Those records had another piece of vital information. Well, on my original birth certificate had my biological mother's name. With a name, for the first time in her life, Michelle started in the only place she could think of. She called information. And I said, are there any families in the Tulsa area that has this last name? And she said, yes, there was one. So I called it. 
And a man answers, and I you know, introduce who I am and, and why I'm calling, and, and the phone drops. That man was her grandfather. Her grandmother picked the phone back up and told Michelle that she always knew she would call someday. Soon, the family arranged a visit. They come down to where I lived. We all visited. And so one of my most fondest memories from my grandfather um, you know, from the very first time that I met him was he told me, and he, he would tell all kinds of little stories, but the one that stuck out to me was the story of the turtle. Michelle was finally experiencing pieces of her culture, but that meeting also brought up difficult feelings for her. I asked them, you know, the very first question I asked when I met them was, why didn't somebody look for me? Why didn't somebody want to adopt me? And both my grandparents and my uncle uh, said that they wanted me. And that uh, my uncle looked at me and said, I wanted you. That's when Michelle learned the man she had been visiting with all those summers outside the grocery store was actually her great uncle, her grandfather's brother. That whole time, he had no idea that Michelle was his relative. In fact, he had tried to adopt her when he heard his niece wasn't going to keep Michelle. He went down to the Department of Human Services and filled out all the paperwork. He wanted to raise her from the beginning, but they wouldn't let him. That was in 1977, just one year before Congress passed a law called the Indian Child Welfare Act, or as it's often called, ICWA. It requires that when a native kid is up for adoption, they are prioritized to be placed with a family member, a tribal member, or another native home. Michelle went into foster care before ICWA was created, but her adoption was finalized after, late enough that, looking back, Michelle knows that if ICWA had been followed in her case, her life would have been really different. And so that really, as an adult, frustrated me because there was so much that throughout my entire life I struggled with. I had a severe, you know, identity crisis because I wasn't white, but I, I lived in the white world. I wasn't Indian, but I was integrated into the Native world. I didn't fit in either. And so I went through an entire lifetime of not knowing who I was, my culture, my heritage, or anything. And had ICWA been followed in my case, I would have been with a relative. I would have kept my language. I would have kept my culture. I would have known my heritage. Um, I, you know, the stories that my grandfather had told me that I had never heard, um, I would have had my whole life. You're listening to This Land, a podcast about broken promises, tribal land, and murder. This year, the Supreme Court was supposed to decide whether half the land in Oklahoma is Indian country. But in a shocking twist, they postponed their decision until next year. The fate of this land still hangs in the balance. From Crooked Media, I'm your host, Rebecca Nagel, citizen of Cherokee Nation. In this episode, we're not going to focus on Carpenter versus Murphy. Instead, we're taking you to the next battleground for Native American rights. Like the Murphy case, it starts in one place and ends up somewhere completely different. 
You'll see similar tactics from the opposition and hear some familiar voices, like Lisa Blatt. You are rendering these women second-class citizens with inferior rights to direct their uh, reproductive rights and their who raises their child. But the story I'm going to tell you in this episode has even bigger stakes. There's a small group of people working to take down the legal structure upholding Native rights in this country, and they found a sneaky way to do it. It all centers around one law, the Indian Child Welfare Act. But to fully grasp the gravity of this threat, we have to start with ICWA and why it was created in the first place. ICWA was passed in response to a crisis. Native kids were being adopted out of their families and tribes at alarming rates. Here's Chrissy Nemo, citizen of Cherokee Nation and the deputy attorney general of our tribe. ICWA was passed in 1978 by the United States Congress, and research leading up to the Indian Child Welfare Act and the congressional hearings found that one-third of all Indian children in the United States were in out-of-home placements, and between 85 and 95 percent of those children were in non-Indian or non-relative placements. This wasn't a coincidence. It was the result of federal policy, the Indian Adoption Project. Kids were taken from their homes just because their parents were Indian. The policy met the very definition of institutionalized racism. We know from testimony um, during the passage of ICWA that many of those practices were very coercive. For example, a mother would have two other children already in her home and be told if she didn't place this baby for adoption that all of her children would be taken by social services. Both federal and state governments believed that the best thing for these children were to get them away from their families and away from the reservation and um, integrate them in, into kind of mainstream white American society. In other words, this was another U.S. policy aimed at assimilating Native Americans and slowly chipping away at tribes. And that's why ICWA was created. The law works in three ways to keep Native kids with Native families. First, to take away the rights of an Indian parent, there has to be proof that they pose a threat to their child. Second, ICWA gives priority for placement to family members, other tribal members, and other Native homes. And last, the law gives tribes jurisdiction over their citizens who end up in the child welfare system. While the law sounds like a straightforward way to protect Native kids, it's become controversial in recent years. And that controversy started with a case you may have heard of, especially if you were a fan of Dr. Phil in 2013. They adopted a Native American baby until the tribe stepped in. They had to turn her over. How do you explain to a two-year-old that you might not ever see them again? You want to commit cultural genocide, steal a people's children. You were told we couldn't adopt them because we are white and they are Indian. No, that's not white. What I hear you saying is what's best for the tribe and not what's best for the child. Next, Dr. Phil. They're talking about the Supreme Court case, Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl. It was a custody battle over a child named Veronica. She never asked to be the center of a national media storm or a Supreme Court battle. Before she was born, her mother put her up for adoption. But her father, Dustin Brown, didn't know about it. And that was a problem, because before an adoption can go forward, ICWA requires that notifications are sent to the father and the tribe. 
The adoption agency did send Cherokee Nation a notice, but it was missing some crucial information. The notice we received, though, his um, first name was spelled wrong and his date of birth was wrong. Um, I think if either of those would have been correct, we would have affirmed that he was a Cherokee member. But without the correct information, Cherokee Nation didn't realize Veronica was one of their own. Interestingly, in trial, the mother stated that when she heard that information, she knew it was wrong, told the um, adoption agencies and the attorneys involved that it was wrong. But the adoption agency never corrected the information. If it had, Veronica would have never left Oklahoma. They simply proceeded as if um, Veronica were not an Indian child. She was adopted by a white couple in South Carolina. Dustin was notified of the adoption just days before being deployed to Iraq. He signed the form because he thought he was giving custody to his ex-fiancee, Veronica's birth mother, not to a white couple in South Carolina. But once he realized Veronica was actually going to live with strangers, he panicked. He was able to pause the adoption thanks to a relief act for service members. Just a week later, he left for Iraq. The media couched it as this this wonderful, caring, upper-middle-class adoptive family who took in this child, the only home that she had ever known, and here comes, you know, deadbeat Indian dad trying to use this special law to give him special protections. The media made it seem like Matthew and Melanie Capobianco, the adoptive couple, were the real victims. When we walked out of the door, she cried after us and held her arms out after us. Do you think this change was in the best interest of this child? Absolutely not. But a family court in South Carolina said Dustin Brown's parental rights couldn't be terminated under ICWA unless there was evidence he threatened the well-being of his child. And there was none. So the court ordered that ICWA applied, his parental rights could not be terminated, that he was a fit parent, and that it was in the child's best interest to be returned to her biological father. Veronica was two when she met her dad for the first time. Chrissy was there. And I think even even at, at that young of an age, like seeing someone who reflects what you look like and then whatever just kind of innate sense that you have of, you know, this is my family and she thrived in that home. I, I saw her often during the time that she was here. For the next two years, Veronica lived with her dad in Oklahoma while the court battle continued. And that's where they thought she would stay until the case went to the Supreme Court. If you affirm below, you're basically banning the interracial adoption of abandoned Indian children. This is Lisa Blatt. She represented Oklahoma in the Murphy case. Remember when I told you that she's a go-to lawyer for anti-tribal interests in the Supreme Court? The baby Veronica case is one of the reasons why. She represented the adoptive couple for free. And back then, she used scare tactics too. You are relegating uh, adoptive parents to go to the back of the bus and wait in line if they can adopt. And you're basically relegating the child, the child, to a piece of property with a sign that says, Indian, keep off, do not disturb. And it worked. Cherokee Nation and Dustin Brown lost. 
The court found that because Dustin never had legal or physical custody of Veronica, that the ICWA provisions that prevented um, the termination of his parental rights didn't apply to him. More legal procedures followed in state courts, but after her family had done everything they could to keep her, the day came when they had to say goodbye. After living with her dad and grandparents for half her life, Veronica returned to the Capo Biancos in South Carolina. Chrissy was there that day. And the decision was made to do the physical transfer that afternoon. We asked that um, he be allowed to have two hours with her. And um, they told us we had an hour. While we were getting ready to walk out the door, um, Dustin's dad, Tommy, collapsed. Um, he had what what we thought at the time may have been a heart attack. Um, we later learned that it was, you know, panic attack. I think it was a broken heart. But, um, you know, we talked about who was going to do this. Veronica's family felt like they couldn't hand their child over. I was one of the few people in the room outside of Veronica's family who she knew and knew by name. And so I told them that I would. And um, so I carried her outside to an SUV and they had a car seat um, in the back seat. And I um, put her in there and helped him strap her in her car seat. And told her that her dad loved her. And I remember, um, especially now that I'm a mom, I, I always tell people when I talk about this story that had I been a parent at the time, I don't know that I could have done that. But I think about how my child would act if they knew that they were leaving. And um, you would expect them, I think, to be... Um, loud and maybe irrational and crying and that wasn't the reaction that she had um she simply sat with her head down and she was crying there were tears running down her cheek but she wasn't making any noise and she wasn't talking and that was the last time I saw her in person we'll be back with the rest of this story after a short break. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Just like Carpenter versus Murphy started with a murder and turned into a case about half the land in Oklahoma, Baby Girl started with an adoption and turned into something much bigger. 
By the time Murphy got to the Supreme Court, everyone knew the larger issues at stake, and that's mostly what the media reported on. That never happened in baby Veronica's case. The public still thinks it was just a high-profile custody battle, but that's not the whole story. While the media missed it, some people who were fighting ICWA at the Supreme Court had a much bigger goal. They didn't just want Veronica to end up with her adoptive family. They wanted to take down ICWA and tribal sovereignty with it. Take Paul Clement. He argued against ICWA next to Blatt in the baby Veronica case. He said that the adoption process for Veronica had been held up for one reason and one reason only, because she was Indian. And that's what makes this child an Indian child here. It's biology. It's biology combined with the fact that the tribe based on a racial classification. And that might sound logical. Treating people differently based on race is, in most cases, illegal. But here's the problem. ICWA isn't about race. This is Chrissy again. It's purely based on whether or not the child has a political relationship via tribal membership to their tribe. Your average person thinks of Native Americans as a racial group, but that's not how the laws that protect Native rights work. We're actually a political group. We are citizens of nations, not members of a race. Just like I have certain rights as a citizen of the U.S. or as a resident of Oklahoma, I have rights as a citizen of Cherokee Nation. Our rights as citizens of tribes are determined by our nation-to-nation relationship with the U.S., which has been established and defined by the more than 300 treaties the U.S. has signed with us. So ICWA is about citizenship. It only applies if either the child is enrolled or parent is enrolled and child's eligible. But opponents to ICWA don't see it that way. They argue that ICWA is based on race and therefore the law violates the Constitution— because the government is not allowed to treat people differently based on race. This argument is very dangerous for tribes. I'll let Matthew Fletcher explain why. As you recall from other episodes, he's a law professor and citizen of Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. I mean, they're going directly at the heart of the political relationship between the United States and Indian tribes, which is the legal and constitutional basis for most federal statutes that are enacted um, in relation to Indian affairs. If ICWA is declared unconstitutional because it treats Native Americans differently based on race, it stands to reason that many other laws would follow. One example, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. It gives tribes the right to build casinos in places where non-Native developers can't. And here's where things get interesting. There's a backstory to Mr. Clement that you need to know. At the same time he was arguing the baby Veronica case, he was also representing a non-native casino developer who wanted to stop a tribe's casino from opening in Massachusetts. The developer wanted to build there, but the state gave the tribe first dibs. Clement sued. In Massachusetts, he argued that when the state gave the tribe preference over a white developer, that was unconstitutional because it was based on race. And then, in the baby Veronica case, he argued that ICWA was unconstitutional because it was based on race. I wanted to ask Paul Clement myself why he argued against ICWA, 
but he didn't respond to multiple interview requests. If his argument is part of a larger strategy, it's a smart one. It's much more compelling to say that a law is unfair because it's harming an innocent child than to say it's unfair because it's preventing a rich casino developer from getting richer. But this equal protection argument, it goes way beyond casinos. I think the end goal is larger than equal. I think the end goal is to get a case to the Supreme Court and ask the Supreme Court to find that Indian law is based on race and not on political status. And, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the different areas that affects gaming, criminal jurisdiction, environmental issues, uh, water, those types of things. All, all of those issues, if ICWA is race-based, um, so are they. This could destroy the legal structure defending Native rights. Every law Congress has ever passed to protect tribes and enforce our treaty rights could fall. The future is scary if we don't win this battle. Sure, there would still be Native people, we could still have parades and powwows and culture nights, but it would be the end of tribes as we know them. It's the same fight my ancestors Major and John Ridge faced generations ago. It's the fight for tribal sovereignty. Paul Clement isn't the first person who tried this race-based argument. But for decades, the Supreme Court upheld that Native rights are based on our political status, not race. The decision in Baby Girl was a victory for Clement's side, but a narrow one. The Supreme Court didn't rule that ICWA was unconstitutional, but it did do something else. Justice Alito's opinion started with a sentence that surprised a lot of people. He said that Veronica was Indian simply because she had Cherokee blood, not because she was a tribal citizen. When announcing the decision, Alito echoed that sentiment. This case involves the custody of a young girl who, through her biological father, has some Native American ancestry. Specifically, we are told she is 3256th Cherokee and as a result, falls within the federal Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. The baby Veronica case put blood in the water. And now the sharks are circling. Just listen to this press conference held by a right-wing think tank called the Goldwater Institute. Though the court majority acknowledged that such an interpretation would raise equal protection concerns, it narrowly construed the law to avoid such a harsh effect. But in so doing, it left fully intact the law to the detriment of many other Native American children. The Goldwater Institute has been funded by conservative heavy hitters like the Koch brothers, the Mercer family, and the DeVos family. They typically focus on your bread and butter conservative issues— But two years after the baby Veronica case, they created an entire department to take ICWA down. The Goldwater Institute announced that it wanted to end, in their words, the separate and unequal treatment of Indian children. Timothy Sandifer, vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, says their main concern is the welfare of Native children. Due to the compromises that the statute makes between the the interests of children and the interests of tribal governments, ICWA actually ends up harming Native American children. But he's making the same arguments about race that we know could upend the legal structure protecting Native rights. 
that ICWA provides a separate and substandard set of rules for a particular racial category of Americans. And Goldwater is trying to challenge the law wherever it can. In litigation, in about a half dozen cases in state and federal courts on issues relating to ICWA. We reached out to Mr. Sandifer about all those cases, but he wouldn't talk to us. Most of their ICWA cases get thrown out because their arguments contradict more than a century of established law and precedent that governs the relationship between tribes and the U.S. But in a case in Texas in 2018, their fringe legal arguments stuck. So um, the Rakeens are a foster family in Texas and a Native child who was taken into um, state custody by the state of Texas was placed in their home. Um, That child has a Navajo mother and a Cherokee father. Um, So ICWA applied to the case and Navajo Nation located a Navajo home that they wished to move the child to. But the Brackeens wanted to keep the boy, even though a family on his reservation was ready to take him. And that was when the legal challenge to ICWA started. Lawyers for the Brackeens made the same argument. But this time, the judge agreed. It's the first time that any federal court has found that ICWA was unconstitutional because it was based on race. That ruling was appealed, and the case is now in front of the Fifth Circuit. That appeals court could throw it out, and it would die there. Or the case could keep going and land in the Supreme Court, the same court that's ruled against ICWA before, and that has enough power to turn the legal structure defending Native rights inside out. So I do think that it should be a call to arms to Indian country that, you know, this is a small group of people coming after our children. And if we can't stop this, we can't stop them from coming after anything else. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. There's one other person who doesn't understand that Native Americans are a political group. President Donald Trump. Last year, his Health and Human Services Department argued Medicaid access for Native Americans is unconstitutional because it's special treatment based on race. If that wasn't enough, before taking office, Trump's transition team proposed privatizing all remaining Native land to ease the path for oil and other resource extraction, basically allotment 2.0. And last fall, his Department of the Interior took away the reservation of the Mashpee Wampanoag, the tribe Clement had been fighting on behalf of that casino developer. The tribal casino was shuttered, and Trump became the first president since Truman to take tribal land out of trust. So how did attacking federal Indian law become a bread-and-butter issue for the right? One possible answer is oil. Non-Indian energy interests really would like to limit the scope of tribal power so that they don't have to comply with tribal regulations. American Indian reservations hold an estimated 20 percent of oil and gas reserves in the United States, 
And that's not all. Reservations also hold half of all uranium reserves and about a third of the coal west of the Mississippi. So if the Supreme Court struck down ICWA, it would be a game changer. Right now, minerally rich lands are held in trust for tribes. Companies can't mine or drill there without the tribe's consent. But if laws that give tribes so-called special protections are unconstitutional, then the current roadblocks to extraction on reservations would become a free-for-all. It's no small thing, given how much our land means to tribes. It holds our people and our way of life. But it's also literally no small thing. In 2009, the Council of Energy Resource Tribes estimated energy resources on tribal land were worth about $1.5 trillion. The stakes couldn't be higher. If the Supreme Court were to strike down ICWA, it would pave the way for more adoptions of Native children outside our culture. But it could also set off a legal chain reaction that threatens the future of tribal sovereignty. This is our last episode for a while. We're as eager as you are to find out the Supreme Court's ultimate decision in Carpenter versus Murphy. Check out thislandpodcast.com for more resources and make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. As for me, I wasn't prepared to wait another year for the decision, but now I have to. Will the Supreme Court ultimately affirm our reservations? Or will our land be taken away from us again? I don't know. History has shown me too much. I know the law is on our side. I also know that's not the only thing that matters. But I have hope, too. I hope that more people are paying attention. As basic as that sounds, visibility is what Native Americans need most. When Native rights are in front of the Supreme Court or being debated in Congress, few people are watching. And it allows those who work against us to face zero consequences. Carpenter versus Murphy might have not made headlines like other Supreme Court cases this term, but I'm hoping it'll stay in your mind. Because once you know what's at stake, it's hard to forget. It's hot in Oklahoma now. Muggy July hot. We had a lot of rain this spring, flooding actually, so everything is extra green. I've been away, and it feels really good to be home. Last weekend, I was up visiting family and took a little detour to stop by the cemetery. Nothing's changed. Everything was like always. The cows were munching on the grass on the other side of the fence. The sun was beating down, and the flowers that had been poking out in early spring lost their buds. When Major and John Ridge signed the Treaty of New Echota, President Andrew Jackson promised this land would be ours for as long as the waters run and the grass grows. From where I stand, those waters are still running and that grass is still growing. In eastern Oklahoma, our tribes are still here. And this land is still ours. This Land is written and hosted by me, Rebecca Nagel, citizen of Cherokee Nation. 
From Crooked Media, Mukta Mohan and Tanya Sominator are the executive producers. From Neon Hum Media, Gabrielle Lewis is our producer, Catherine St. Louis is our editor, and Jonathan Hirsch and Vikram Patel are the executive producers. Sound design and mixing by Vanessa Lowe. Natalie Wren is our researcher. Laura Bullard is our fact checker. Our theme song is composed by Jared Tate, citizen of Chickasaw Nation. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Podcast art by Kelly Gonzalez, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Additional production support from Fire Thief Productions, including Nathan Young, citizen of Delaware Tribe of Indians and Cherokee Nation, Jeremy Charles, citizen of Cherokee Nation, Shane Brown, citizen of Cherokee Nation, and Melissa Lukenbow. Special thanks this episode to Aaron Doherty Lynch. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.